Hi, everyone. My name is Ryan Merkley. I'm a director with Aspen Digital. Thanks for joining us today. This session is part of an ongoing series. It's actually one of our last ones on mis- and disinformation hosted by the Aspen Institute in tandem with our Commission on Information Disorder. We have been talking with experts uh, across a variety of fields who are helping us make sense of all the different aspects uh, of this crisis that we're facing. Uh, these are designed as a resource both for our commissioners, um, but also for the broader public. And we really hope uh, that you're enjoying them and that you're getting a lot out of them. We definitely have been, and I'm really grateful to all our participants. Today's a conversation I've really been looking forward to. Um, I'm speaking with two experts in the field of cognitive science to help us understand how the brain responds to false information online, how people interact, and really get into the cognitive science details of this uh, challenge uh, that we're facing. Let me first uh, introduce uh, both of them, and then we'll dive into a conversation. Um, First is uh, Dr. Danielle Polage. She is a cognitive psychologist and professor at Central Washington University. She studied the impacts of false information and in digital environments and the effects exposure to repeated lying can have on individuals' beliefs uh, and how they accept those lies as fact. Our second expert is Dr. Bobek Hametian, a PhD candidate in cognitive science and a second year master's student in computer science at Brown University. He studies how social narratives form and are negotiated using computational methods, machine learning, and behavioral experiments to test his hypotheses. His research dives into how people communicate, how they find consensus online, and how they interact. So welcome, Danielle and Bobek. Hi there. Welcome. Glad to have you with us. Thank you. So uh, we've had a lot of interest in the cognitive science aspects of mis- and disinformation, questions from our commissioners and also from the broader community. Specifically, what happens in our brains and to our memories when we are exposed to false information and the kinds of discourse and how, how that, um, and what kind of tactics make us more vulnerable to its effects? So the question I kind of want to open with for both of you as you've worked in this field how has this rise of the discourse of myths and disinformation in recent years impacted your work? Um, has this concern around fake news led to an increase in research and studies? How has it changed the conversation for you? Uh, Danielle, do you want to kick us off? Yeah, sure. Um, well, in general, when we're presented with any information, we tend to believe it. So our default is a truth bias. And it works in general pretty well because most of the time people are being honest with us and most of the time we expect um, people to be honest with us. And we just don't have the ability to, um, the ability, the time, the means to verify everything we hear. So it's a really efficient form of communication. And um, this impacts how we believe news, whether it's truthful or whether it's not uh, truthful is because we do have a tendency to believe things that are, are told to us. And in addition to generally believing new information to be the truth, the illusory truth effect is the tendency to increase the belief in statements based on repetition. So not only is new information typically perceived to be true, but it becomes more and more true to us the more times we hear it. And this effect was first observed, Hasher et al. in 1977, they gave them a bunch of statements on a variety of topics, politics, sports, all different statements that were plausible, um, but they were things that would be unknown to your average college student who was the participant in the study. 
And some of them were repeated up to three times over two weeks and others weren't repeated. And regardless of whether they were true or not, repeating them made them more true. And this effect has been repeated in a variety of, of contexts and it plays a significant role in disinformation and, and fake news. So most information in the news, you would assume to be new to most listeners. That's why they call it the news, right? So people don't really have a lot of firsthand knowledge about what's happening in politics. They don't really know what's happening in the world around them other than what they hear. And even so-called conspiracy theories, a lot of them are plausible. So our job then is to decide whether or not what we're being told is true. And as I just mentioned, typically if we hear it and it's repeated, we assume it to be true. And in 2012, I ran, I, I think it was the first study um, looking at the effects of repetition on fake news. And I just made up several news stories, um, things like a cruise ship had crashed off the coast of California, where I was currently living. And then I included uh, the true news stories, a bunch of uh, fake ones. Um, some of the true ones would be things like benefits of green tea. And over time, people just rated the the lie, the made up stories as more truthful, more plausible by me saying to them one time. So um, not only did they uh, believe in this false information, but then they actually thought they had heard it from other places. So they thought that it had been repeated. They thought it had been verified by multiple sources, but we made it up. Um, more recently, Penny Cook, uh, Cannon and Rand, I think in 2018, they used fake news headlines. They posted them on Facebook, and with it, a single exposure, people were believing that these um, false news were more likely to be true. So, there's a lot of uh, impact in the memory research looking at just hearing things. You're likely to believe them, and if we don't have the resources, I can talk a little more if you want um, later about you know sources and and when you don't have knowledge about a topic, we rely on the source. Uh, and we assume that's how our most of our education system works. I tell my students stuff. They think I'm telling them information and it becomes part of their, their um, belief system. And that's what's happening in the news. And what ends up happening is we have to look at the source of the material, but a lot of people don't know how to evaluate source. We don't have the ability really to decide if the source is true. And we've also had a decrease um, the believability of our sources. A lot of people believe, a lot of people don't believe the government. So when you don't have direct information, that's all we have. So um, it's a very difficult mm -hmm. situation we're in because people don't know where else to get the information from. And if it doesn't agree with what they believe in, <laughs> they're not going to listen to it. So. Well, let me, uh, there are so many things in there that I, uh, I, I want to unpack with you, but I also want to um, hear from uh, Bobex. So um, let me just, um, let's come back to that earlier question about the, you know, Danielle, you cited so, so much research that goes back before the time when disinformation was a word we all used. Um, Bobek, how has, have you seen that shift as disinformation has come to intersect with a field that has actually been studying this kind of uh, cognitive science for some very a very very long time. Illusory truth uh, illusory truth effect is what 1977, right? So we've had these concepts for decades, but disinformation is changing them. Have you seen a shift as you've come into this work and, and done your own work? Um, yeah, definitely. Uh, I think uh, 
on, on, on one hand, there has been increased interest in studying them, uh, but also I would say the, the impact of these effects has uh, become greater because a lot of the social media that we use are designed to essentially prey upon these cognitive mm. features that have been extracted through uh, cognitive research to make people more engaged. Now that can be in service of good, but uh, that can also be in service of evil things. And you know that it, it can help the spread of misinformation. And I would say uh, personally, I think if I were to summarize the decades of cognitive research in one key takeaway, it would be that we are simultaneously incredible and very limited. Uh, we have incredible, as humans, we have incredible attention uh, and sensitivity to tiny sources of information in our environment, but at the same time, uh, our ability to incorporate a lot of information into our decisions is limited. And this is what misinformation and disinformation uh, is particularly effective at exploiting because they can uh, use cues that are usually in our, our minds are wired to associate them with important information. They use those cues to uh, make us pay attention. And then they provide the kind of uh, simple and uh, simple and easy answers that our brains like to base uh, their decisions on, which then easily uh, propagate. So I think mm -hmm. part, part of the difference that social media have, uh, have made is making it easier for these effects to happen. But at the same time, mm -hmm. they've also made it easier for us as researchers to study them. So hopefully that can help. That's good. And I'm, I'm going to ask you about some of that research in a few minutes. Um, Danielle, I, I want to go to some of your research first. Um, in your 2017 paper, Liar, Liar, Consistent lying decreases the belief in truth. I really liked the title of that. Um, you studied how lies affect the liars themselves, the ways that telling the lies changes how we perceive the truth. I, I want to give you a second to just talk about that because it feels like we're seeing some of that, the way that people become the tellers of lies and then they become the purveyors of those lies which they now believe. So you open saying uh, that people tend to believe what they find as truth, but you also open that paper with, this, with the sentence, the average person lies about once a day. Um, and so why do we all lie so much and, and how does it become truth in our minds? Just could you walk us through how that happens? Well, if you think about the content of what we're saying, actually lying once a day probably isn't very, <laughs> very <That's fair>. much. <laughs> of, course, of course, the average, I mean, there are, is a huge span. There are some people who barely lie at all. You know, there'll be a fraction of a of a um, point there. Um, and then there's you know, people who lie a lot. And I think for people who lie a lot, I think the people around them might start to pick up on that and might discredit that person as a source. Um, so when they're hearing lies from someone, we all have that friend who, you know, we hear a story from them and we think, oh, well, I'm sure it wasn't true the way it happened, or you have some kind of, you know, lack of credibility. So I think um, in terms of hearing lies, I think the source, ultimately, I think this all comes down to source monitoring. Um, and basically, we have cues that we can pick up from external information. We also have cues we can pick up from internal information. And as we're making that decision process, deciding whether or not 
to believe either ourselves in our own memory and trust that memory, or to believe other people, we use these cues, these source cues, to figure out how real does this memory seem to us? So is it something that I have a lot of details about? Is it something that contradicts other information I know to be true? Is it um, from a source that I perceive to be credible? These are all things that you ask yourself as you're trying to determine whether or not any information is true. And I think if you rehearse it enough and you want to believe it, I think you can decrease your sensitivity to certain cues. So you might think that memory is a little bit foggy to me, but then you could come up with reasons why it might be true, why that memory could still be true, even though it's a little bit foggy to you. Or you've repeated it so many times, you've come up with great details. That's what I did in my, in my study. I had them use certain techniques that would lead to a good memory. So the lie becomes a good memory. It becomes that has a lot of details. It has one that has time cues. I would ask them you know, to think of what they were doing before and after the event, to connect it with their own history, use familiar names and places, and really just have a rich detailed memory, which is often what we use to determine if something is true or false. We also like to think of the cognitive um, techniques that were used. So if I remember clearly an event, but I also remember that I know I lied about that event. I'm gonna have a clear memory, but I'm also gonna have a, an awareness for the cognitive operations that went into creating that memory. So I may have a memory of it, but I could also then say, I'm not gonna believe that this is true because I know I made it up. I might even know why I made it up or to who I made it up or for what purpose. So all of these different cues go into whether or not the memory will be believable. So repetition causes familiarity, it causes increase in details. That's something that if you want someone to believe something, you just keep making them repeat it over and over again and get it to the point where that memory is really fluid for them, really easy to pull it out. And if you want someone else to believe you, you want to be a credible source. So you want to be a person who is generally believable. Um, you want to blend truth and fiction together so that they have parts of it that they can hold on to. Those are the most pernicious lies, right? Those that that sound right, and then you add little details in that aren't quite right, but if they're not obvious or they're not blatant, they may not pick up on that information. And if you come out and say something that's totally contradictory, people don't believe it. But if you kind of slide it in there and add it to a story that's already believable, but don't make it too obvious, right. that information will kind of just go along with the rest of it and over time, it'll just seem true. It'll be with the rest of it and they won't notice it. So it's, there's these kind of sneaky tricks you can use to trick yourself, to trick other people, <laughs> to be tricked. Um, and I think the more you know about those things, the better liar you probably can be. And uh, in my study, I found that those who lied more often actually were the ones more likely to believe it. <laughs> so, um, you know, one of the one of the things that stood out to me so much in throughout the research is the degree to which those liars come to believe the things that they have been lying about. Um, in the paper you wrote, you know, falsely assenting to events that have not happened increased the liar's belief in those events, which is as you had been describing. And you mm -hmm. cited some previous research that said, through repetition, the content of the lie is strengthened, the truth is inhibited, and the lie may in fact be confused with the truth. So mm -hmm. that, 
sounds an awful lot like some of the things we're experiencing in real life here right now at, at, a, at a pretty substantial scale. And, and as you said, Bobek, amplified by platforms that make that go faster, potentially. And we're going to talk about that. So we know that repeated lies in news articles can become adopted as truth. You've talked about that. And that our brains can misattribute the source. Um, and sometimes, uh, as you said, in, you found in your research, they attribute that source sometimes to something more credible than where they originally found it. They, mm -hmm. Their brain fills it in. Um, and we also know that if we repeat those lies again and again, we come to adopt them even more deeply. This feels like a lot like what we're hearing in this in this kind of crisis of disinformation when we talk about anti-vaxxers we talk about conspiracy theories that are built out of things that people are familiar with that seem convenient that are assembled not from outlandish things initially but actually from things that look reasonable that are fit together in just the right or wrong way mm -hmm. and obviously the people who stormed the capitol on january 6 believed whatever lie they were carrying deeply enough to to go to washington they eventually became to believe the lies they were told and the lies that they go on to tell others in part because they've been telling them to themselves why does it work this way what what is it that that allows this to happen in these in these larger groups and and uh, first individually and in these larger groups why does this happen to our brains Is that directed to me? Sure. Uh, yeah, and and I think I think uh, Bobek, you've got some insights perhaps to offer around the ways it happens in groups online. So would love for you to to join in after. Yeah. I mean, I think you're getting at at you know an issue that's a really huge issue that um, we don't know what truth is. A lot of times we don't know what the truth is, and the truth may not be what we think it is. It may not be what our adversaries think it is. It may not be who our polar opposites politically think it is. Um, it might be somewhere in between. We may not have the whole bit of information at all. And the problem is most of the live research and the memory research that I'm looking at, it's information you're trying to trick people into thinking they did things that they hadn't done um, or they didn't do things they had done. In all of this information about politics and anti-vaxxers, we're not talking about firsthand experience. We're talking about information that they've been told from other people. And for your average person, we don't have access to information on vaccinations. We don't know what information is out there. And the information we have is what we think is out there. So are basing information on the knowledge we currently have, which could be incomplete, it could be wrong. And we have to just trust doctors, we have to trust the news, whatever source we're getting that information from, it's not information that we're getting firsthand experience. Some people do have firsthand experience, so some people have adverse reactions to the vaccine, and then that further strengthens their opinion that the vaccinations are bad, right? Another person who had a good experience with a vaccination may further think like, I'm so glad I, I, I got this vaccine because you know my brother got sick and I didn't. So your experience can, can add to this, but basically what it comes down to and why I think the disinformation is so prolific right now is because people do not trust the sources anymore. It used to be that news sources were totally reliable. If you turned on CNN or Fox News or whatever you watched, you kind of were getting the same story from both sides. What you see now is you can turn on one news story and hear a completely different version of the same event 
And both are considered experts by the people who watch those shows. And so what's happening is you're getting source credibility is completely determining the information that you're believing. But interestingly, if you look at why people believe a certain source, it's often because that person espouses beliefs that already supports the person's pre-existing opinions. <laughs> so, so a person who watches CNN might think CNN is the only you know, reliable news source because everything they hear on CNN goes according to their preconceived beliefs. Whereas a person in Fox News will totally believe everything on Fox News because it fits into their narrative of what they believe. And there's been studies looking at this. There's a study, um, I think it was Cahan, uh, 2011 at all. I don't remember the other author's names. Um, and they had a, um, a person who was considered a, a weather expert and they were looking at global warming and they gave participants the same description, it was supposed to be a researcher, I think who got her PhD, his or her PhD from Harvard, was working at like MAT, sounded like a really reliable source. But for half the participants, they were told that um, this person believed that humans were causing climate change. And the other half were uh, told that this researcher believes that that claim is too premature. Well, interestingly, uh, if you looked at their political affiliation, they rated the credibility of that researcher completely different based on what they said. If they agreed with climate change and they happened to be kind of a liberal Democrat, they really rated that person as a highly credible source. If they believed in climate change caused by humans, but they were kind of right wing Republican, they completely discredited the reliability of this, this expert. So you have the same exact person being as credible by half your population as completely non-credible by the other half, just depending on what they say. And that's the problem we're in right now is that credibility is being determined on opinion. And we don't know where to go. People are at a loss for where they can find credible information. People don't know how to find this information themselves. I mean, I can look up studies in Medline or something online and I can look at you know, what they're saying about it, because I have access to that, but I'm not your average person who has access to medical journals or other kind of thing. Your average person just is what they hear. And if they agree with it, they'll consider it a credible story. If not, they'll just discredit it. So what, we, what we're running into the problem is, is that the source of all of the information is being discredited by people who disagree with what they're saying. And our, um, our belief in the, the accuracy of news is at an all-time low. Media has such low, and same with our government. People just don't trust news anymore. They don't trust the government. And then you're left with social media. <laughs> well, that's People a go perfect, online to um, see what their aunt and what their friends are saying. And we know that we all pick friends who tend to agree with us also. So we have social media echo chambers. We watch the news that validates our own opinions. Hence, we are in a huge issue where everyone thinks someone saying something different than them is disinformation. So it, it's, a, it's a really sticky situation because the more you believe and the more you know and the more you hear, the more you're validated in your opinion and the more you'll seek to be um, credited, the, the more this you'll seek to be validated and you get more and more polarized. 
which is, I think, where we are now, which is a really dangerous place to be. I think that's a great um, segue for me to um, to uh, head over uh, to Bobek. You've used machine learning to look at how people engage with information and discourse in online spaces and, and speaking to um, Danielle's earlier comments about the way people accept or reject things that they find online, I think. Imagine hearing the speaker, the expert, watching the news, and then going to those online groups, whether it's a Facebook group or Reddit, uh, you know, r slash whatever. You know, you've looked at evidence and values-based discussions and how they vary in the online discourse. And I want to give you a chance to talk a little bit about how do those platforms then impact that discourse when people take what they've heard online or when they find things there in their group engagements? What have you seen in your own research? Yeah, I, I, I think this connects well uh, to the ideas that were just discussed because um, I think particularly because we're limited in the amount of information that we can incorporate into our decisions, we have to rely on our communities to supply us with ways of thinking. and. Uh, one thing that has been really highlighted in my social media research is uh, how easily methods for simplifying issues uh, oh, spread online, online and, and within the discourse. Um, in particular, the kinds of arguments that people provide and the kinds of evidence that they provide. With respect to arguments, you can think of two broad classes of arguments. One is uh, based on my values, for example, we looked at same-sex marriage. Uh, my religion forbids same-sex marriage. That is value-based. Uh, compare that with a consequence-based argument like same-sex marriage would help the economy. Now, the, really, the meat of the discourse is in the consequences, but uh, values are much easier to talk about. I just say, I believe in X, and as a result, therefore, same-sex marriage should not be legalized. And what we saw was that before majority support for same-sex marriage was reached, uh, people were talking more and more about their values. But once the decision was essentially made in 2012, only then they were like, well, this seems to be happening now. We need to talk about the uh, stickier consequences. And kind of a similar thing is happening uh, in marijuana legalization discourse with respect to the kind of evidence that people use. Again, you could think of anecdotal evidence, like my cousin got uh, jailed for weed and ruined his life, or as opposed to here, here is what they found in a clinical study to be the effects of marijuana. And really the meat of the discourse would be internalized arguments. But what we see is that, especially ahead of uh, successful legalization ballot initiatives, there's a, a big increase in anecdotal discourse where people are sharing these anecdotes. So again, I think the role of these anecdotes is to simplify the issue both for the speaker and the listener to more easily make a decision but there, there's a danger in there because then uh, anecdote could very well not be generalizable. Uh, it, it, it could be presenting the exception rather than the, the rule. And there's another worry that I am uh, looking at in a different area of my research, which is that anecdotes are easier for uh, bots online to produce than generalized arguments. So very soon mm. we might 
have our online spaces flooded with fake anecdotes in a way that might not happen for a few more years at least uh, for more generalized arguments. So I think uh, that that is partly how this discourse has become kind of subverted. We are talking in in terms of information in less substantive ways, but in ways that are more contagious and more easily spread online. Um, before we leave this topic of, of discourse, I want to come back to you both. Um, the uh, one of your uh, other pieces of research, you um, you talked about uh, sort of community related mechanisms um, uh, that can harm the discourse. So not just not trusting the speaker, but actually sort of thinking you know more than you actually do about the community you're judging. Uh, I think a lot of our listeners would be familiar with the Dunning-Kruger effect where individuals with low ability overestimate their ability, but your research also looked at how sort of community groups make this even worse, This what you called the misguided sense of others uh, in one of your papers, this concept of how it impacts discourse and consensus building. Can you talk a little bit about what that 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 those assumptions and what that what you've seen online in this misguided sense of others concept? Uh, yes. Uh, well, what we've found and a lot of other researchers have found is that uh, the relation between individual knowledge and uh, beliefs and the accuracy of beliefs is complicated, to say the least. Uh, what's more straightforward is the relation between our perceived sense of understanding and uh, how strong our beliefs are. And our sense of understanding is lots of times affected by how well we think people in our community understand things. Uh, the problem is that lots of times this can uh, quickly become a house of cards. I, I think that I understand something because I think others understand it and others think they understand something because they think I understand it. And, um, we, we have studied this in the context of um, Korean reunification, uh, the attitudes in South Korea towards this issue. And um, at least in that area, it seems to be causing a lot of um, polarization. But uh, we have also looked at the kind of mechanisms that can produce this, this type of result. Uh, for example, uh, in what, I, what I've called, I've discovered and called uh, the label entrenchment effect. And it's this idea that lots of times, especially when we're talking about things that we don't know much about, we substitute common usage of a label for its uh, informational value. So we say, if people in my community use a particular term a lot, that, that means it has more value as an explanation. And uh, our experimental results show why this can be dangerous because you can give people labels that are transparently useless. There is no information at all in them. And as long as the community commonly uses them, uh, they, people, people feel like they are explanatory. And it's because we have this kind of quick and dirty uh, rules of thumb for uh, figuring out what about I do not know, but I have access to in my community that can help me uh, better know what information is out there. And uh, I, I can give, it, give an example of what I mean by circular. Imagine I tell you there are stars that have variable brightness. And I tell you there's nothing else that is known about them, uh, but they are commonly called carinaric stars. 
And then you come across a star that has variable brightness. And you ask me, uh, why does this star have variable brightness? And I say, because it's a carinaric star. This is completely circular. Carinaric mm -hmm. star just means has variable brightness. But as long as the label is commonly used, people feel like it's a better explanation. And we showed that even mental health experts, when they're thinking about uh, mental disorder categories that have been debunked, uh, can fall prey to this kind of thinking where they confuse the common usage of a label with uh, its actual informational value. And you can imagine how, more, how much more dangerous this can become in online discourse because uh, bad actors can have a, a thousand bots post uh, a term that they coined under a, a thousand comments and all of a sudden a word that most, most of the people don't even know what it means uh, uh, gains currency and gains informational value. And this is, for example, one of the ways in which new concepts, pseudoscientific concepts can uh, spread online. Well, the, I think this is the point in the conversation where I become kind of sad for, for our future, because I, <laughs> what I'm hearing is our, our brains are easily fooled. Um, when we lie, you know, we can fool others and even ourselves and kind of rewrite the truth in our own brains. Uh, repetition can be used to make us believe fake news and, uh, and share it widely. We make assumptions about people online. We mistrust the people that we find. Um, and uh, we are susceptible to things like labels in order to, you know, accept meaningless definitions or even meaningful but negative definitions um, that, that we're presented with. So I guess my, my question to both of you is, is there anything we can do about it? What are some of the things that you know or have learned through your research or that you have read in your own work um, that are meaningful interventions or things that can make us more resilient? What are some of the things that we can do about this? Um, I can uh, speak to that. Uh, I think one of the things that in the same research we found was that at least with experts, uh, if you bring their attention to the fact that they are using the entrenchment of the label uh, by mistake as its informational value, they can correct course and, and, and do that damage. So I think uh, just knowing about the kinds of uh, mental shortcuts that we make can make us be more wary of uh, abusing them or using those shortcuts in places where they should not be used. So for example, uh, just knowing that these labels have this effect might make someone a sub for a few seconds next time and say, do I actually know what this term means? Do experts actually know what this term means? And that can also prevent other people who know about these uh, cognitive properties to abuse them. Uh, and a, a similar thing from my social media research uh, would be that, for example, when we know that anecdotes can be so persuasive, but uh, can also be uh, deceptive, we could always be on the lookout for people who use just anecdotes to persuade us. And we can always ask for, uh, what is the generalized argument? What is this instance an instance of? So I, I don't think these are things that we cannot overcome, but these are techniques that uh, the population has to be more trained in 
and I think there also needs to be more monitoring of uh, these social media spaces by the stakeholders, you know, by the uh, by the policymakers, by the NGOs, etc., to notice these kinds of trends and to step in with these kinds of counteracting cognitive mechanisms. That would be my suggestion for what can be done. Thank you. Dr. Polaj, I mean, you've been, uh, I was reading your paper on fake news and realized that at the time you wrote it, fake news didn't mean the same thing that it means today. I, you've, you've had a, a lot of experience in this space and I'm, I'm really curious, especially when you think about both the liars and the lied to, you know, what are some of the things that we can do to intervene or to make people more resilient? I think one of the most important things to resist falling prey to fake news and disinformation is to increase your knowledge base in the topic that you're talking about. Um, that Penny Cook study that I had mentioned earlier, um, where there were statements, some of which were clearly false, um, when there were things like the earth is a perfect square, repeating that over and over again did not increase their belief in those statements, even when they saw them multiple times. So if there's an obvious contradiction to knowledge base, people won't fall prey to that. The problem is most people don't have a knowledge base in a lot of the topics that they decide to talk about. Um, a lot of people, I, you know, especially people on, online who are arguing with their friends and stuff about politics, probably know very little bit about the topic. So my first advice would be to be more well-read on any topic that you would like to have um, discourse on and um, avoid being prey, falling prey to some of, some of these techniques is a knowledge base. Um, that's something a person can do. Um, I also think that when you're hearing uh, information before you decide whether or not you agree with it or, or um, you know, whether or not you're going to decide whether the, the source is accurate, think about how you would feel if someone on the opposite side of the spectrum said that same exact topic. Uh, there's been some studies shown that they looked at statements that were attributed to Trump or not attributed to anyone. And people who were strong Republicans, if Trump said it, but the same idea, if someone else said it, they were less likely to. Similarly, Democrats, if they knew Trump said it, they wouldn't believe it. <laughs> so we, again, I'm coming back to the issue of source because I think it's so important that sometimes we need to know who the source is and then we base the credibility of the statement based on the source. But sometimes we need to think in reverse. We need to think if someone I completely agreed with said this, was I, would I be as opposed to that information as if someone who I disagreed with said said it. So it can work, work both directions. I think being open-minded and not just agreeing with people we agree with generally uh, is a great idea. I think uh, politicians and the media need to also do this. They need to stand up for truth even when it goes against the narrative that they're hoping to uh, perpetuate. I think if we could see you know, Democrats coming together with Republicans on topics that they wouldn't normally agree on, I think it would restore our faith kind of in the system. And then people would be more likely to believe something um, from someone who tells the truth at all times and isn't only just feeding into the story that they're trying to sell. I think the source is really, really important and we need to know credible outlets. I think people need to be able to uh, look at 
information that was found online and before reposting it, find out where did this come from and um, check it out online. There's a lot of good sources that you can look to see independent people who have tried to evaluate the truthfulness of that and not to perpetuate things if you don't know where they came from. So I think preventing information from being repeated if you don't know if it's accurate is another great tip, especially for people who are on social media. A lot of people repost things and you talk to them and find that they didn't even read the article. <laughs> so they definitely don't know where it came from. So um, those would be some of my suggestions, um, evaluating the source, um, getting your own deep knowledge base in the topic and really not talking about things that you don't know very much about and spreading information but don't know to be true. That's great. Thank you. And you've, you've led me into the platforms, uh, which is my second last question. Um, Dr. Palaj, in one of your papers, you wrote, these results don't suggest that liars become fully convinced of their lies, but instead suggest an eroding of belief, which could increase as the number of times they lie increases. And I'm interested in, in hearing from each of you in this idea of erosion and enforcement uh, or reinforcement. Do you think it's possible that social media has the potential to prompt this sort of stating of lies and sharing of lies at a higher rate because uh, it's different than your normal daily human interaction? You have so many more people in your network, so much more constantly prompted by the apps. Do you think it's possible that social media plays a role in amplifying that potential for reinforcement uh, and, a, and a deeper entrenchment of those lies in our cognitive um, reality. I definitely think um, it plays a role because I think a lot of people, I don't remember the number of hours, but I looked it up when I was writing paper, how many hours people spend on social media. It's where they're getting the majority of their information from. Um, on the other hand, I don't know if I believe that platforms such as Facebook and um, Twitter and all those should be responsible for the content that are on there. Um, I believe in your freedom of speech and I believe that people um, need to think both sides of the, the issue. And I feel that only with free open discourse can you actually sometimes get to the truth. I don't think um, having our media kind of filtered through and only tell us what they believe is, is the answer. In research, you know, if I wanted to write an introduction section to a paper and I wanted to kind of support one side of the argument, I have to read a, a variety of studies, some of which show the effect that I'm looking for. Some of them didn't find it. Some of them show the opposite. And as a researcher, I feel it's my job to kind of sift through the information and figure out how the methodology was different, look at the statistics myself, try to figure out kind of the whole story. But I don't think I'd get that if I only heard one side of the argument. So I'm not um, one for, for filtering out information. I do definitely think that Facebook um, has the potential to be very biased in um, what we read because, you know, I don't know if this is still true, but I, I had heard that, you know, once you're clicking on something, it brings you more of the same topic instead of bringing you the opposite. I think that would be really interesting. So if you're searching for, for one side of the argument, I think it'd be cool if they not only gave you more information that's similar, which I know they're trying to you know, sell things. If you search for something, they're gonna give you lots of links to something similar. But I also think it would be great if they threw in some you know, opposite side of the, the ideology for the topic. So you can kind of 
read both sides of the argument and and have that discourse instead of just you know being fed one side of it. So I do think they are a big part of the problem, but I don't think um, kind of forcing them to be the information um, police is is the way to go, at least not in my opinion. Lovek, what's your sense of the uh, the role of amplification or extension uh, that that you see in online communities through your work? Uh, well, one, one thing that I'm particularly worried about, and I briefly mentioned this earlier, is that it's much easier for non-human actors and agents to uh, present themselves as part of the discourse online. And that actually undermines the kind of you know, free exchange of ideas that, uh, that was just being discussed because uh, I've been studying uh, taste-generating algorithms, and even between 2019 and 2020, uh, th there has been a massive reduction in the difference between the quality of a human writing and the quality of a, the writing of a computer. But okay. now a human can write you know, one comment in perhaps like a minute, but that algorithm can write a million comments in a minute. So mm -hmm. it can... Uh, you know, the flood, if, if the floodgates open and if the platforms don't really crack down on this kind of you can end up with a situation where it seems like there are many people with a particular opinion, but it's actually a few actors with the technical know-how who are, you know, uh, spreading this data everywhere. So I think, um, the good news is that based on my research, the, the algorithms aren't there yet. We humans are still with enough attention can uh, tell artificial texts apart from human texts. But uh, I think within a year or two, they would be. And that is certainly something that we, we should hold um, the platforms responsible for because if uh, we start, uh, wondering if everybody we have a conversation with online is a computer, then I think the whole discourse breaks down because mm -hmm. then even the truth when shared online can be assumed to be, you know, uh, coming from a bot that is uh, paid for by, you know, a cabal. And, and then with, with the full breakdown of discourse, we, we would be left with nowhere to go. So in an, in an hour, we've gone from we tend to trust everything that we hear at first to a world where we may trust nothing that we find even when it's true. Um, last question uh, for each of you. As I said off the top, these discussions are meant to inform the commission uh, and, and help them uh, focus their attention on the places they can have the greatest impact with some potential recommendations. So considering your expertise and the psychological and cognitive impacts mis and disinformation can have and the tactics that can be employed against individuals and groups, are there things that you would recommend or advise the commission to think about or focus on as they go into the, the next phase of their work through the balance of the summer. Danielle, do you wanna kick us off? Uh, I think it, the, the whole bot issue is really interesting, something I, I haven't given a lot of thought to, but um, I definitely know that the research shows that if people feel that they are in the minority, they're more likely to, to swing and, and kind of go over the other side. So I think on a technical side, 
that uh, ability to stop um, the the robot and you know um, computer interaction would be a great um, place to start because I think humans should have <laughs> free ideas and each person should be represented one time for each person, um, but definitely it would uh, level the playing field if you had one uh, person controlling a robot or just a bot uh, using learning theory, putting out millions and millions of, of opinions that look like the whole world believes one way when um, really it's not. So I, I think that's a really important part. Um, but as I said, I really think, um, I don't know how to get the information out there about credible sources, but I really think the, the source is something that needs to be um, something that is really important because from a user's perspective, if I don't know information about a topic, where do I go? I go online and I try to do research. And if the information I'm, I'm finding is inaccurate, my beliefs are going to be inaccurate. If I'm being lied to all the time by the information I am um, reading, that's what I'm going to believe. So I think the, the information um, sources need to be credible. I think there needs to be um, an emphasis on data-driven decisions um, and transparency. I think transparency is very important. I mean, I, I've been disappointed that I don't think the vaccination, uh, you're talking about anti-vaxxers uh, earlier, um, I've been disappointed that the information about the vaccine has been focusing basically on bribing people with free donuts and, um, you know, limiting their freedom if you don't get one, instead of presenting data. Like data is the way to get people to make decisions. And um, I think often data is hidden from, from the population. The government data is hidden. I think um, the media isn't providing appropriate data. I think transparency is something that needs and let the data speak for itself. And, you know, in, in research, we're now going to kind of this open platform where we have to present our hypotheses and present all our data and we have to put everything out there. So a person reading the study can make a decision if they think that the methodology is sound and if the statistics were appropriate. Uh, for me, I'm a data junkie. I want more information and my access to information on stuff I know about and I'm, I'm a expert on is obviously pretty good, but there's lots of things that I'd like to know about that I don't know enough about. And I don't even know sometimes where to go to look for good information. So transparency for me, a good sourcing, um, increasing knowledge base and controlling um, bots um, online to me would be, that's where I would go if that was my goal to to prevent disinformation and to increase people's literacy. Thank you. Abek? Um, I think uh, one thing that I've seen in all of the research done on social media discourse is that whenever there's been a major change in discourse, uh, whenever there's been change in attitudes, when there's been polarization, there's been consensus building, there are profound shifts in discourse. And these are things that uh, the stakeholders can monitor better. You know, th these are things that right now, especially with machine learning methods, um, we can do at a scale and at a level of detail that would be of interest to 
the public and would be of interest to uh, psychological scientists. So I think one uh, direction to go in would be a better use of these methods for tracking discourse, because at this point, we can predict for a lot of topics in which direction things are going. Um, and the, the other thing is to uh, make a better use of these psychological principles uh, in policymaking, in de designing information campaigns, and in uh, even kind of like individual trainings, because these are uh, things that the social media companies, for example, are already making uh, use of. You know, uh, one of the major employers of cognitive science, uh, recent cognitive science graduates are uh, these big uh, media companies like Facebook. And they are applying these methods, but I don't think we are applying them to the same degree when, uh, you know, people in Washington DC are trying to make decisions or when NGOs are trying to evaluate uh, how to frame their you know, advertisement to reach their intended audience. So I think uh, th this is kind of the same idea of uh, being data-driven just at a more institutional, uh, a more societal scale. Uh, that, that, that would be my mm. main recommendation. That's great. Um, thank you so much to both of you for spending the time. Thank you for your work. It's incredibly compelling and important work that you're both doing. It was really a, a pleasure to get to go through it and then to, to be able to ask you questions about it. So I appreciate that very much. Um, this is all the time we have. And so I just want to say thanks again and uh, look forward to a chance to chat with you perhaps again in the future. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Uh, this was a great conversation. Really appreciated the questions.